This is Law Bites, a podcast with Michael Geist. Signed, sealed, and now delivered to the House of Commons. Just last hour, the federal government tabled a bill to implement the new NAFTA, a deal that Canada, the U.S., and Mexico reached six months ago after 15 months of negotiations. Canada, the U.S., and Mexico are at our most efficient, most secure, and most profitable when we work together. And it's about time we got back to that way of thinking. Mr. Speaker, the new NAFTA will secure access to a trading zone that accounts for more than a quarter of the global economy. And it's now time for the members of this House to ratify it. Likewise, it will be the most advanced trade deal in the world with ambitious provisions on the digital economy, patents, very important. The new NAFTA, dubbed the USMCA or CUSMA, depending on where you live, took a significant step forward recently with the introduction of Canadian legislation designed to ratify the treaty. Bill C-100 comes near the end of the legislative session and just months before a federal election, but the government may still work to rush it through the parliamentary process. The economic implications of the agreement are enormous. As Professor Myra Tofik, my guest on this week's podcast, has noted, it touches on everything from cows to cars to copyright. Professor Tofik is a leading copyright expert at the University of Windsor and a senior fellow with CG, the Centre for International Governance Innovation. She joined me to talk about Canada's long-standing history of facing external pressure on copyright, the role that trade negotiations now play with that pressure, and the implications of the USMCA. Myra, thanks so much for joining me on the podcast. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. Well, it's great to have you, and it comes at a time where there is a lot certainly taking place from an intellectual property perspective. We've had just this this week as we're recording this, another copyright review, which will have significant consequences for where things go. But, but even more, there is now a bill at the House that deals with the implementation, ratification of the new NAFTA, the USMCA, which has significant implications for intellectual property as well. And so I thought we, we could focus a bit on what's in the bill, but even more, the very issue that, that IP becomes an important part of these trade deals, which mm-hmm. may take people mm-hmm. by surprise. And so why don't we start there? IP hasn't always been a big part of trade deals. I mean, it was NAFTA, actually, that the, the first NAFTA, the original NAFTA, that introduced the concept of having intellectual property rights as part of uh, international free trade agreements. I'd also like to welcome here the representatives from Mexico and Canada and tell them they are, in fact, welcome here. They are our partners in the future that we are trying to make together. And that was a significant shift. So we're talking sort of, what are we talking about? Sort of 25, 30 years ago, where the the U.S. particularly started to think about um, ways in which uh, it could maintain and and grow its advantage uh, in the international trade landscape. And IP, of course, the U.S. is is sort of a huge developer and exporter of intellectual property. And I think that has had a fundamental shift in the way intellectual property rights have been viewed both domestically 
domestically and within the international framework. So NAFTA was the first to do it. So it's a fairly, you know, in the grand scheme of things, it's it's not that that long ago. But from NAFTA to the WTO trips and onward through every international trade negotiation and trade agreement since then, there has been an intellectual property code in most of them. Okay, and and when you talk about international code and these trade agreements, I assume we're talking about everything from the the new Canada EU trade agreement, the mm-hmm. CPTPP, the Asia trade mm-hmm. agreement. This isn't just a U.S. Canada Mexico thing. This is global in scope. It is global in scope. It is, although if you if you look at some of the bilateral trade agreements that Canada has entered into since NAFTA and TRIPS, sort of, you know, a number of them uh, with some some of the South American countries, et cetera, we, you know, we, we haven't necessarily put intellectual property in those trade agreements, which suggests to me sort of, you know, uh, Canada's, you know, Canada's perspective within this context that IP rights um, or IP codes within trade agreements may not necessarily uh, be to our priority of ours. But yeah, absolutely. So uh, particularly every trade agreement in which the U.S. is involved or the European Union, you'll find, um, you know, these intellectual property provisions or intellectual property code, what I'm calling codes, but sort of, you know, chapters that deal specifically with the various forms of intellectual property rights. And what we've seen over the years from from NAFTA is the beginning of DAFTA WTO trips is an increasing kind of attention to raising um, and enhancing and strengthening the intellectual property rights with each you know trade iteration of the of these new trade agreements. Yeah, so that's interesting because it suggests that Canada's participation in in these trade negotiations and agreements and then ultimately with these IP chapters isn't something that's necessarily a priority for the country. If you take a look at the recent Israel agreement or the South Korea mm-hmm. agreement or some of the other agreements, it's not that Canada's pushing this. You're suggesting this is this is coming in this case from the United States. Yeah, I think that's correct. I mean, you know, I think, you know, I do. I, if you look at kind of, uh, you know, over the long term, the centuries, you know, at least a couple of centuries of Canadian involvement in international intellectual property rights, especially in the international copyright space, but but generally, we've always been somewhat sort of ambivalent about, you know, where where we should place ourselves as a middle power, generally an importer of intellectual property. So it'll always it's always going to cost us more sort of to buy the IP from elsewhere and. Obviously, the U.S. looms large, um, not only kind of in, in, you know, in, in the practical realities of, of, uh, of engaging with the U.S. In, in, you know, imports and exports of, you know, copyright works, et cetera, but also just sort of in terms of, um, you know, uh, a, a dominance, you know, sort of that there's sort of there's a, you know, sort of a psychology around uh, our relationship with the United States that's, you know, that, that you can trace that way back, you know, to the 19th century. So, it, you know, it's not it is it is always sort of this this you know ambivalence about what our what our place should be within these these intellectual property international intellectual property system uh, and it is usually the US that looms large kind of in in, in determining uh, our approach to to a great extent not totally but to a great extent you're one of the leading copyright historians in the country can I want to come to today but I you know I can't help but but ask you ask you to sort of expand a bit on some of that history side and since we've seen this for decades if not centuries in terms of US mm-hmm. pressure on Canada mm-hmm. 
<laughs> yeah, no, I know we want to talk about today, but I do think, I mean, one of the things about looking back in time is you start to see a picture that is sort of more kind of longitudinal and evolves over over centuries in our case. Um, but, uh, you know, there, there was one of the most poignant things about doing copyright history is to realize that there was probably, a, there was only about a decade, and this was prior to Confederation, where uh, Canada or Canadian colonies at the time actually had autonomy to determine their own sort of intellectual property laws, sort of the course and the policy underlying their intellectual property laws. And by the mid-19th century, um, the U.S. had become sort of a very important uh, force in, you know, with, with Britain. I mean, we're still a British colony at the time. But the, the point is it sort of became, it started to assert uh, its own um, uh economic and cultural interests in a global in a glow in the global space um, by the the middle of the 19th century and we were caught up in that and so every time sort of the the u.s you know, sort of, you know, had, had a, uh, a dispute with the UK over the imports of British copyright works, etc. Um, we got caught in the crossfire um, because our market became a bargaining chip for the British, for example, to try and enter into some kind of uh, compromise agreement with the United States. And so I know it's, I don't want to get into, I mean, it's too much to get into the detail, but the point is that, you know, with every international trade agreement, including the Berne Convention, uh, not trade, but the copyright agreement, the Berne Convention, We've always been sort of this, there's been this ambivalence because we can't detach ourselves from the reality that we love to, you know, consume American entertainment um, and, you know, other products sort of in the copyright space. Um, but we also don't have that we lose control then or autonomy over how to determine our own policy interests and therefore how to chart our legislative course in a way that matches those. And what we've tended to do is adopt multilateralism i mean that somehow that that there's strength in numbers and that we should sort of be you know good international citizens and that we're better off kind of in in um in you know regional or multilateral agreements than on our own and i think that's generally been a good approach for us but it does mean that particularly on the intellectual property front we are often dictated to by uh, you know by others whose standards are by definition um, you know, are necessarily higher than ours because they are the ones that are producing the intellectual property that we're consuming, um, and and I and that has been a pattern, sort of. You know, I mean, I, I, as I say, I won't go into the detail. It's fantastic history, but it it has been our pattern, and I don't know. I I mean, I think we're arriving at a moment where, where we are actually engaging, I see it, with greater maturity in these international negotiations. I mean, there are some of some parts of the Canada-U.S.-Mexico agreement um, that that are actually sort of do, um, you know, take into account Canadian interests, the cultural industries exemption, which we had in the first NAFTA, um, the notice and notice, kind of preservation of notice and notice. I mean, those are things that you could see sort of Canada's identity or autonomy um, coming through. But on the whole, every time we've entered into any of these international trade agreements, it's because someone else, and usually the United States, has wanted to impose higher standards because it serves their interests. So we've often um, adopted sort of um, uh, international principles or rules that serve the interests of other countries rather than first and foremost our own. And, and that on that point, that has been our history for a long, long time. Yeah, amazing to think that there's nothing new here in the, in the sense of 
facing pressure from the United States and, and mm-hmm. ultimately as part of that broader trading relationship, being willing to give on the intellectual property side, presumably in the expectation mm-hmm. that there were gains elsewhere. Right. Uh, that's right. So I, I do want to touch on some of the places where we may have shown that greater maturity or mm-hmm. a willingness to stand up for ourselves. But I guess first, let's just make sure people are familiar with the landscape here. The USMCA or CUSMA, depending on which acronym, <laughs> which country you are and what acronym That's you right. want to use. Uh, there is, of course, still some doubt as to whether or not it'll get ratified. It was rather almost disorienting to the extent to which you had the U.S. vice president promoting the trade agreement in Canada at the same time that Trump was threatening new tariffs on Mexico, mm-hmm. which suggests that this may not go anywhere. But mm-hmm. but if it does, Canada clearly wants to be ready. They've now put forward a bill that allows them to do that. For someone new to the issue thinking about mm-hmm. intellectual property, what's the what's the what's the biggest issue in there in that bill, do you think? Uh, I think that, well, the biggest issue, again, because, you know, my my bias is towards copyright is is sort of the the term what we call the term extension. So the 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 obligation that Canada will have to extend the term of copyright protection what from what it currently is, which is life of the creator of the copyright work plus 50 years after the death of that creator to 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 move uh, to move it or increase the term by 20 years to a life plus 70 duration of protection, which is, you know, sort of the norm increasingly becoming the norm uh, in in key international, in key, you know, partners, international partners, or in in, in key jurisdictions like the European Union, the United States has a similar kind of, obviously, as as a life plus 70 term. Um, Mexico, I think, still has a life plus 100 term. um, But we have maintained uh, and, and been very strong on maintaining our view that we should only abide by what we're the minimum term that we're required to do to to uh, uh, adhere to under uh, the terms of the WTO trips and the Berne Convention, which is a life plus fifty term. Okay. So this will be significant. Yeah. So just so we're, it it will. That, thank you for that. It will be. So just so we're clear, though, Canada does currently meet its international obligations with the life plus fifty. Absolutely. Canada has always met. I mean, that's what sort of Canada has always met its international obligations. You know, again, if you go back over the parliamentary debates around Bern and and early in the 20th century, we've always been very conscious and conscientious about meeting our international obligations. So there's no doubt about that. Where where the quibbling is, is in, you know, that there is wiggle room in terms of these um, international treaties, and there should be. Um, And some sort of other countries, uh, insist that um, we actually should be adhering to higher standards, but we are we we are adhering to our international commitments absolutely. Okay, so what, what's the ar- argument then for? And you know, I, I know some of the answers, but I'd, I'd love yeah, to hear your yeah. perspective on it. What are some of the arguments then to extend copyright term if, as a starting point? We meet the international mm-hmm. standard, and if copyright is about creating incentives for creativity along with access, if we're going to, in a sense, gift an extra two decades of protection to works that have been already created, what's is there a strong policy argument for extending term beyond this is the pressure we're facing from the United States? Well, I mean, the, 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 the sort of the most kind of, I suppose, 
sort of benign or, or neutral argument is that, you know, the life plus 50 term sort of originated, you know, in the early, late 19th, early 20th century. Um, and that at the time it represented sort of the life of the author plus two generations, basically, um, of, of heirs or, you know, a state that could, could claim the copyright. Uh, in other words, there was a sense that, you know, because the the, the, the author or the creator has uh, created something sort of that's worth you know worthy or worth something to posterity that the heirs should be able to to claim um, after the author. Um, uh, passes away, and so you've got sort of that that fifty as two generations, and so the you know one who is uh, well, people are living longer, and therefore it's only natural to extend the the term. I mean, it's just a sort of a no brainer kind of thing. You extend the term by twenty years because people are living longer, so you're you're adhering to the same principle, um, and you know recognizing the reality that you know in in our uh, in our sort of century we're living longer, um, and so what could be you know a problem with that the other argument of course is because of the uh you know the international dynamic i mean one of the reasons or one of the pressures that comes from increasing inter uh, intellectual property standards globally is that canadian creators etc will start you know, to, to will realize or will feel that they're actually disadvantaged, um, or that you know the Canadian market is disadvantaged because there isn't this sort of uh, harmonization of the term by 20 years, um, and so they would put pressure again on 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 Canada to meet uh, what is now at you know notionally the claim is now becoming the international standard, um, and so you know I mean I find it I. I I'm obviously biased. I mean, I, I don't, I don't think. Uh, first of all, intellectual property rights were never intended to unlimited rights. I mean, they're they are limited for particular public policy purposes, and so the idea of continuously, oh, it's just twenty years, or it's just another ten, or you know, people are living longer, or whatever, it doesn't persuade me that this is something that is in the best interest of, of Canadians as a whole uh, and Canada sort of as a country. Um, so I, I find it hard. I mean, I, you know, those are the arguments that are put forward. But I think no matter what, what you do, any extension of copyright term, you know, harms kind of the, the, the ability for people to access um, and, and work with uh, the, the sort of our, our, you know, cultural literary, but, you know, sort of the also sometimes very technical and practical software, for example, is a copyright work, but to, to enable us to, to engage with those works once a reasonable period has expired where the, uh, you know, copyright holder has had the benefit of being able to exploit commercially um, the, the, their, their create, the, the results of their creativity. So, you know, I don't know if I answered the question, but I, it's hard. For, I, I find it difficult because I, I feel fundamentally that um, that that copyright should be limited in duration. And that, you know, the argument that it's just another 20 years because people are living longer, it doesn't persuade me that 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 it's always necessarily a good thing to continue to heighten or strengthen copyright rights. Right. So there and there is certainly a clear opposition to this, notwithstanding what the Canadian Heritage Committee had to say uh, mm -hmm. in its review of, of some copyright and remuneration issues when it said it didn't hear from anyone that was opposed to it. It's quite clear, and we saw it in the other in the main copyright mm -hmm. review that there is, and, and you've articulated the arguments for, but also some of the costs, because there are costs associated with it. So Canada has resisted this for some time, both in terms of sticking to what they've 
done, as well as taking it off the table in some other agreements, if I'm not mistaken, including, for example, the CPTPP. That's right. I mean, I think the CPTPP is a really good example of where Canada positions itself in the international trade and IP landscape. Because if you look at sort of the original TPP, when the U.S. was participant, you see a lot of the same kinds of provisions that we're seeing in sort of NAFTA 2 or um, and. and but when the U.S. withdrew, um, the agreement that ultimately sort of Canada um, participated in contains some suspensions of key intellectual property provisions, um, which, you know, in other words, again, the, the, the duration of copyright, this extension of term was not included as part of an obligation or at least suspended in, in terms of an obligation under the CPTPP. So I think you get an indication there of where Canada f- feels more comfortable of um, developing or, or, or either, whether increasing or remaining at, um, uh, uh, you know, it's life, the life plus 50, for example, level, which is, is, has been sort of the standard for, for a long, long time. Um, so, yeah, uh, I think there's, uh, there's, there's, there's evidence there of Canada's position on these things. Um, and that's a good example of Canada taking more of a lead, lead once the U.S. withdrew um, to be, being able to carve out something that is maybe closer to where Canadian policymakers think the international IP system, sh- the direction it should be taking. Right. It strikes me that, that we've seen an attempt to perhaps continue that even within this USMCA, because in this bill, mm-hmm. uh, I think most expected to see an extension in the term of copyright, but we didn't get it immediately. No, um, no. The, there is a transition period, a two and a half year transition mm-hmm. period, and it would appear that Canada is intent on using that transition period uh, to delay implementing an extension and perhaps thinking about alternative ways to extend term of copyright if that's an ultimate requirement. Uh, What do you think they might have in mind? And so what's this delay in a sense about? Well, I think, I mean, you've obviously commented on this, and I think this is a really good example of Canada sort of looking for, you know, being part of the international community, but looking for Canadian-made or solutions that actually work within or that that, 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 that is, is consistent with, you know, Canada's vision or, 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 or understanding of its of its role in the international intellectual property space, because it really is sort of this this two and a half years to consult to sort of figure out ways of compromise, um, I think is, is really genuinely, uh, uh, you know, um, um, an assertion of autonomy uh, in these negotiations. And if there's any indication, I mean, if you look at the Standing Committee on Industry Science and Technology, their report that just was re- was just released, um, they make a suggestion about how we might address the the last 20 years of our, you know, the life pl- moving to life plus 70 by imposing a, a, a formality, a registration requirement for those last 20 years and any infringements, you know, so if you have a, sort of a, if, if copyright is infringed in that those last 20 years, only the registered, only if you, you could only sort of pursue for infringement if you've registered your right. Um, so life plus 50 and then a 20 year period where we are introducing a formality or that's the recommendation of the Indu Committee, uh, a registration formality. Right. It's a, it's a really interesting approach. So It really is. For those that aren't familiar with the <clears throat> issue around formalities, you're not permitted to have those formalities for the base requirement internationally. So that's the life plus 50. And so 
what it appears there may be a possibility of doing, and what we've even seen a recommendation now to do, is to essentially say, we'll provide life plus 50 plus 20, as opposed to yeah. a pure life plus 70. And that extra 20 is there if you want it. But I, I assume that, or presume, that, that many may, by that point in time, say we're comfortable with this being in the public domain, which will allow us to allow those copyright owners who want to ensure that they've got copyright protection to continue to have it for that full period. But those that by that point in time aren't interested anymore to ensure that those works flow into the public domain. Absolutely. I mean, I think what it does is it creates certainty for those last 20 years for like you said, as you say, I mean, for those either the work, I mean, there, no one, you know, sadly, no one cares about the work anymore in that, that after that length of time, or, you know, uh, the, 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 the copyright holders, are happy with having it uh, fall into the public domain, that's that's great. But only those who have made then a formal and have identified themselves through a registration formality. So there'll be a registry that you could go and check and determine whether or not they've, they've made, they're maintaining their rights. I mean, that creates certainty in ways that actually in the past, the registry, you know, before, as you explained, um, copyright, you don't have to register your right. There are no formalities to securing the right. There used to be way back when um, and that you know the, the sort of we gave up uh, I mean that the create certainty those records obviously create certainty and there were very sound policy reasons for moving away from that but reintroducing this in in the last 20 years I think is a really innovative like creative compromise to addressing some of the problems about the, the, the length the duration of copyright um, you know in in relation to for example sort of orphan works which are works in which the author can no longer be found to secure permissions I mean, there are all kinds of things that happen. If you think about, you know, the lifespan of of of, a, of an author, or creator, and then seventy years after the author's death, um, you're talking about, you know, a long period for there's, you know, loss the loss of living memory. Here, at least, there would be a tangible record of the individuals maintaining their their copyright right. So I, I actually think that's a really creative and 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 effective compromise um, that you know I'm I'm I really. Uh, it's really quite, um, you know, interesting um, that it came out in the Standing Committee's report. Right. It's exciting to see that happening both at the policy development level through the yeah. committee and then potentially at the government level as well, given that they have not put it into this bill. Uh, there's a, This is obviously not the only provision in there. Are there other things people should be paying attention to on the IP side within Bill C-100 in this implementation? Now, one of the main goals for renegotiating NAFTA was to create a more modern agreement. The current deal took effect about 25 years ago, before the advent of the digital economy. Now, there's a framework for dealing with intellectual property. Pharmaceutical companies will also get exclusive marketing rights on biologic drugs for 10 years. Well, one of the provisions that's been controversial has been this issue regarding patents and biologics. And I must admit, I'm not, you know, sort of as, uh, you know, familiar with the technical side of it, but it relates to some forms of sort of pharmaceuticals. And some of the arguments, uh, so we have currently have an eight-year sort of protection, sort of added protection or additional protection for that form of, of, of uh, patented invention. Um, and the obligation for us is to move to 10 years uh, and the two year I mean it, it may seem not not seem like a long time two years but two years and sort of you know when when you're dealing with you know very expensive um, uh, pharmaceuticals where we want to introduce new medicines um, to, to you know for public health reasons etc um, that 
these these this added two years will create a burden in terms of the fear is that it'll raise the costs, which are already the costs of, of drugs for Canadians, with which are already quite high. We're paying a lot for our pharmaceutical uh, medicines. So that's one that is worth watching um, uh, because there has been a lot of criticism about that. Again, the idea that that the the enhancing intellectual property rights, so two-year term on biologics or life plus 70 and copyright. I mean, every time you, you enhance kind of the, the right or you give more rights to the, to the, the right holder, um, there's, there's a cost associated with that. And, and obviously those, who, those countries that are strong producers of those uh, um, uh, outputs or outcomes or whatever are the ones, in, it's in their best interest to ensure that sort of they can get as, as much protection for as long as possible possible. Um, and of course, the corollary is for those countries like Canada that cannot compete and cannot produce to the same extent. It means that there's a cost to us. And the cost here is is sensitive, obviously, because a lot of we're talking about, um, in, in many instances, obviously, sort of important pharmaceutical products. So that's one that I think, you know, needs to be looked at, which has raised some, you know, uh, criticism or discussion um, the the other is there's some dis, uh, I, you know there's a I mean the intellectual property provisions obviously cover every form of intellectual property so copyright patents trademarks trade secrets industrial designs I mean it covers the range and provides enhancements and you know tweaks and sometimes significant changes to all of the forms of intellectual property the other one that's been flagged as an issue for Canada relates to what we call trade secrets or the law of confidential information where the US has been pushing and um, and if you read kind of the you 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 the uh, the various reports issued by the US trade representative sort of on uh, its intellectual property assessments annually it's concerned that countries don't provide enough criminal sanctions for you know industrial espionage basically or misappropriation of trade secrets with intent or you know that we're not we're not aggressive enough and that there are provisions in the um, Canada US Mexico agreement uh, that uh, that deal with um, you know enhancing the criminal side of, of our existing laws, uh, trade secret laws, which are provincial, actually. So it does create kind of another layer in terms of constitutional jurisdiction that we need to pay attention to. But again, the argument, some argue that we already do provide sufficient, we already meet our obligations under, um, uh, you know, the this the NAFTA 2, um, and therefore won't require any significant changes. But I think there's a sort of an ethos behind what you, the U.S. kind of criminalizing um, appropriation of certain kinds of trade secrets um, that, you know, we need, to, I think, to watch for, even if we do, in principle, abide by um, the, 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 the rules in the NAFTA 2 agreement, uh, I think that there's, there's going to, it's, it's opening the door to further um, uh, persuasion, negotiation, etc., around us developing a much more robust or aggressive criminal uh, um, uh, range of criminal kind of remedies or criminalizing uh, certain aspects of, of, uh, of trade secret law that we don't currently do. So we've got expansion of trade secrets, including criminalization-related mm -hmm. concerns. We've got higher costs on the patent side, higher costs on the copyright side. Why don't we wrap by just asking, is this the right place for these kinds of issues? Each one on their own would be a major policy issue that one would like to see debated. 
is there a concern? It's, it's almost a rhetorical question, but <laughs> yeah. shouldn't there be a concern that these kinds of big policy issues with real costs run the risk of getting lost amidst massive trade deals that have implications for every aspect of our economy? That's absolutely right. I mean, I've never, I mean, when, once we we agreed and once the international community decided that intellectual property rights should be contained or these chapters should be contained in international trade agreements, you know, we have been unable because what they do, of course, is they're they're inflexible. There are kind of, a, you, you know, you have to buy into the whole agreement, not just you can't pick and choose. So you can't say I don't like the intellectual property chapter. So I'm not going to agree to that. But I will agree, you know, to the chapter on, you know, that dairy or whatever it might be. Um, so we have to accept everything within the agreement, which means it's sort of horse trading, you're going to give and take in certain areas, the policy, these fundamental policy issues around each form of intellectual property and how they they, they they land in practice in Canada and what kinds of you know what's the global public interest in relation to intellectual property rights gets lost um, and so if we could you know turn back the clock and go back to the time where we had separate international treaties or international agreements on each form of intellectual property so the Berne Convention that deals with copyright the Paris Convention that deals with you know patents trademarks industrial industrial property I mean you've got all of those um, international treaties that dealt specifically with each form of IP and address the policy concerns you know in a in a multilateral sense, now we've got, we're trying to do all of our intellectual property within kind of the rules and constraints of an international trade agreement, which is a fundamentally different, um, uh, you know, sort of uh, beast, basically, it's fundamentally different, agree, na the nature of it is fundamentally different from the nature of standalone intellectual property agreements. So absolutely, I think we're, I think each, each time, I mean, uh, each time we enter into these agreements, each time we deal with enhanced IP rights globally, we lose flexibility. And I think we do need to ask ourselves, this is not just a Canadian issue. I mean, it is an international issue. Is it necessarily in this global public interest that we should continuously be engaging in in with IP in the International Trade Forum and with a view always to increasing and enhancing the rights. There's a point at which it's strong, you know, sort of there, there will be a tipping point if we haven't reached it already, where, you know, intellectual property rights actually hinder, impede innovation, creativity, and we will be, you know, m all of us globally much poorer for it. So I agree. I think I think we need the, the policy issues that we need to be addressing are not being dealt with in the international trade forum. And yet that's become the primary forum for dealing with um, international IP, um, you know, since since NAFTA, since the first NAFTA. Right. And just to, to riff on a line that you used when we reached the agreement, yeah. that's all happening from a Canadian context where we are prioritizing economic issues like cows and cars, and cars. as opposed to yeah. copyright. Yeah. Yeah. I think it should be the three C's, <laughs> cows, cars and copyright. We can't lose sight of the of the importance, especially in a global innovation economy, of our, our need to start to understand how to play in the international spaces in intellectual property. So, yeah, cars, cows and copyright. Well, that's a great way to end it. Myra, thanks so much for joining <laughs> me on the podcast. Thanks, Michael. That's the Law Bites podcast for this week. If you have comments, suggestions, or other feedback, write to lawbites at pobox.com. That's L-A-W-B-Y-T-E-S at P-O-Box.com. Follow the podcast on Twitter at Law Bites Pod 
or Michael Geist at mgeist. You can download the latest episodes from my website at michaelgeist.ca or subscribe via RSS at Apple Podcast, Google, or Spotify. The Law Bites podcast is produced by Gerardo LeBron LeBoy. Music by the LeBoy brothers, Gerardo and Jose LeBron LeBoy. Credit information for the clips featured in this podcast can be found in the show notes for this episode at michaelgeist.ca. I'm Michael Geist. Thanks for listening and see you next time. Mm-hmm.